Welcome to Coming Clean, a podcast that provides a safe place for people to be real and authentic about their struggles to overcome addiction and mental illness. This is the perfect place to share stories of triumph and tragedy with millions of other people who are secretly wrestling with demons that are destroying their lives. The podcast will be educational and informative and will provide hope and inspiration by lining a path to recovery that promises a better life. My name is Peter Estevez, and this is my friend and co-host, Dr. Steve Farber, and I'd like to welcome you to today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the new episode of Coming Clean Podcast, a safe place to bring awareness to addiction, depression, mental illness, or simply any social taboo. This platform is intended to help those interested in their journey from darkness into the life of self-reconstruction. If you listen to the similarities instead of the differences, you will eventually hear from a story from one of our guests that will lead you into the life of self-reconstruction. And today we are going to attempt to do that one more time with an incredible guest, uh, a friend and a gentleman that has uh, been making a lot of noise in the waves, uh, in the airways of social media, Kyle Dean Houston. Hello, Kyle, and welcome to Come and Clean Podcast. Thank you, Peter. I really appreciate that. It is a privilege to be here, finally on your show. I uh, respect everything that you're doing and your mission. Thank you. To do this. Thank you so much. You know, Dean, um, I'm going to go over your bio very quickly so the audience know who you are. Those of the, you know, that, that part of the community that might not know who you are. But Kyle Dean Houston is an author. He's actually the author of upcoming book, Patchwork Junkie. He's a speaker, he's an author, he's a coach, and he is committed to bringing hope and awareness into the world. After walking out of prison uh, at the age of 35, no college degree, no network, and having never, never sent an email, he had to build a highly successful career as a cell ex- executive in San Francisco. In less than a decade, he went from earning $10 an hour to vice president for a $2 billion publicly traded company. Kyle's life story, shocking, riveting, and inspiring. Currently lives in Tampa with his wife and two daughters. What an incredible story. How do we get out of prison at the age of 35 and we go and build a sales career for a company that eventually sells to a $2 billion traded company? Oh, there's the million dollar question. Um, Yeah, so, there's so many steps inside there, right? I couldn't possibly tell you. Um, but I think what's really important is when I walked out, um, and, and this is something that you said in my bio there, when I walked out, I had never sent an email. Technology had passed me by. The seven years that I did in there, um, we went from the internet just being a concept to now getting to the point to where we had smartphones. So um, I had to find confidence. I had to face fear uh, that I think is, is unique and unusual for a lot of people. But w- what, what happened with me is when I was doing my time, I decided in there that I was going to make decisions that would make me successful. That's where success started for me. Everybody always comes to me and says, how did you create success once you walked out? And the truth is, I did it when I was mopping floors, when I was wiping tables, because I made decisions in there that if I couldn't be the best table wiper or the best floor mopper in there, in that environment, how could I ever imagine getting out and becoming successful? But it, I- 
that makes a lot of sense, Kyle, but let's go back a little bit. Uh, and I want to get back to that point. Okay. Because that's, you know, we all have in our stories, in our stories, we all have a, a tipping point, a psychic change, a moment of clarity, whatever you want to call it, that we, you know, we come to a crossroads, most of us at some point in our lives, and we decide that we need, you know, that we, we kind of take a self-inventory, right? Those of us that, that inspire to personal growth and, and, and change and evolution and becoming the best that we can be, and we get to this crossroads, and, and, and that's where our change begins, okay? But prior to that, we never thought about that. Uh, something has to click. Something has to happen. Tell us, tell us, how did you end up in there, first of all? Okay. And so the short story. What year was that? Uh, the year of my arrest was 97. Mm -hmm. And there was, um, but there was, there was uh, some moments of making bail and then getting arrested again, which was short-lived. But pretty much 97, 98 was when I was incarcerated. Um, what was the charge? It, manufacturing methamphetamine. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it just, just to kind of touch on that a little bit, I, in a very short period of my life, 18 months to two years, I went from a low-level lose, uh, loser, a low-level user to a notorious meth cook. And it, it happened. It was driven by addiction. Uh, it was driven by a, a lot of things. It certainly wasn't driven by greed and money. Uh, it was driven by my need to never run out. And then once people found out that I could manufacture meth, which I, I taught myself how to do that, um, I had lots of friends, quote unquote friends that I didn't need that continued to perpetuate that cycle of, of cooking. And eventually I became uh, wanted by the federal and uh, state authorities. So I was arrested um, on, for the charges of manufacturing methamphetamine, facing 30 years of my life, ended up in a single cell by myself 23 hours a day. And that's kind of where I had this tipping point that I think we're getting to. And it, it, so, so this is back in 97 and 98, and then you get, um, you get out on bail. Correct. And and you get rearrested. Correct. Did you get rearrested or did you go to trial and, and you were sentenced? I, I love this, Peter, because you're really, you're really digging in deep on the embarrassing stuff, but this is what we're here for. So, um, so I get out and I, within, I'm arrested. I spend six months, five to six months of my life getting my head screwed on straight. And this is when I don't understand my addiction whatsoever. And I make bond that I finally get a change of venue. Some people may not know what that means, but I got the chance to get out. And I, I thought I had it made. And within 24 to 48 hours, I was already using intravenously again and it had caught a possession charge and I was back in. So it was very short lived, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I, uh, I ended up, finding out that I was absolutely powerless to my drug and that I could fool myself in all the ways that we know how we do that. Yeah, I, I absolutely. And, 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 and I want you to know something. The, the, the premises of, 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 of sharing your story 
and it's never our intention to embarrass anybody, but it's, oh. always, it's always to bring clarity into how powerful and, um, and, and, and how powerful the stronghold addiction has in us. And, and, you know, here you go from facing 30 years and then you get the sense of freedom and you go right back to using, which is the same thing um, that got you in there in first place. And while you're in there and while you're clean, you are promising to yourself how you're going to do things differently. Okay. Uh, but the minute you get out, you go right back to what you know. And what you know is actually what is that detrimental to you because you, you may have paused the use, but you have not entered a process of transformation and recovery. And, 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 and you know, and, 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 I, and I think, I, I, I think those are the important points that we need to touch on because um, who wants to be in there for 30 years? Mm. You know, nobody wants to be in there for 30 years but yet there's many, you know, there's many people that, that get a DWI and get out on bail and they run to the store to celebrate to buy a six pack because they just got out on bail. Although they, they're facing maybe 10, 15 years in prison for a DUI. So, so you get out of, um, so you're in there, you get arrested, you're incarcerated and you didn't get any type of treatment. None. Okay. You get out on bail, you get rearrested. So what happens when you get rearrested? So eventually I end up back in the county that gave me the bail and I end up in that cell that I was talking about by myself 23 hours a day. But at this point, I've, the, there was one person that was still in my corner, which was my mother. Um, and now at this point I have nobody, right? She was the one that helped me with the bail. She was the one that believed in me. She was the one that trusted the words that came out of my mouth because I believed them. Um, but after this arrest, I'm by myself and I'm facing the 30 years. I'm, I'm, I've got the new case and I have nobody uh, that's visiting or supporting me or believing in me. And I have never felt more alone in my life or imagined that. So that's, that's kind of the, um, you know, the, the backdrop of that situation. What happens after that? So, 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 so you, you go to trial or that you plead out? So it takes a while, right? But I did, I ended up pleading out. So what, what ends up happening is that I, I had this fantastic spiritual awakening. Um, I, we were talking about, um, you know, understanding our addiction. Incidentally, I've, I've never received treatment. Uh, I've, I've never gotten treatment. I was kicked out of a a treatment center after three days at one point in my life. But what did happen inside that cell, which is very near and dear to my heart, and I think, I think your listeners will like this, is I got to a point to where, you know, here I was, and, and you were talking about how nobody wants to do 30 days. I don't think very many people want to do 30 minutes. And I had a mano a mano with God, and I asked for truth. And two books came to me. One of those two books was The 12 Steps. And I devoured it and I read it and I discovered things about myself and spirituality and all of that changed. And then lucky for me, about a month before my sentence, my, my lawyer came to me and said, hey, look, the sentence just got weak. They didn't have a reason to pull you over and they want to make a deal. 
And so there's a lot more detail to it, but I ended up getting a nine year sentence. So we reduced it from 30 to nine years. I took that and I went in to do my time. So, and, and, and when you go do your time, uh, again, you're, you're not attending 12 step program meetings. You're not going to AA meetings. Your only resource to recover was your book and the second book, which you have not mentioned what that book was. I'm happy to mention it. I didn't know it was the Edgar Casey primer. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Edgar Casey. No, I have not. So you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I'll tell you a little bit about it. He is, um, <laughs> Peter, I love this. I love that we're going through this. You're, you're really good at interviewing. Um, it is a book about the most documented medium um, it, it ever in history. And he essentially married uh, Christianity with something that was the kind of the father of new age. And so he talked about reincarnation. He talked about um, all sorts of things that were very new to me. Um, but through reading that book, through the 12 steps at the same time, I got to a point to where I was able to release some of the restrictions that my childhood religion had put on me. And I got a new definition for what spirituality should look like. And I started to understand that it really, life itself is really all about love and oneness. And that's what I dedicated my life to and prayed feverishly that I wasn't going to have to do the 30 years that I was looking at. So it was a very defining moment in my life. Now, you're, are you in isolation at this time? Because you said you were there for 23 hours a day. I am. Uh, now, isolation in the sense that we had... We had cells next to one another and we could hear one another, right? But we're in a cell by ourselves and we got to get out one hour a day to go shower and do what was called rec. Okay. Um, how were you able to make a connection with God, with spirituality, and, 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 and even make a connection to find hope in the 12-step program where you lack the most essential human need, which is human connection? Hmm. So I, I mean, I can answer that, but let me, let me just say something. Yes, I think the most essential human need is connection for sure. But I felt, I still felt connected to people with my heart. And, and I, I, I usually don't articulate things that way, but that's, that's the truth. Um, how did I make a connection with God? This is, this is, and I don't want to minimize this situation because it's the scariest moment of my life, right? And it's, it's a situation where you're just riddled with guilt and shame and all the things you should have done. And oh, by the way, you're slowly coming out of a drug stupor. But with my situation, it turned into something extremely beautiful because I had no distractions. I wasn't worried about what car I was going to drive. I wasn't worried about status. I wasn't worried about the house on the hill. All I had to wear was, believe it or not, they were black and white striped um, gear, and I had a little bit of soup and some coffee, right? That's all I had to think about all day. And at this point, what else are you going to do? You're going to try to figure things out, right? So minus this, this, the distractions, add in the time and the commitment to figuring out what went wrong. And for me, it equaled a, a beautiful spiritual awakening. 
Well, absolutely. And, and, And what you just said is key to a point that I talk about very often. You know, addiction... Addiction, in, 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 in my opinion, goes through two or three different cycles. And you go from recreational use to uh, addictive use. And that addiction, when you, when you go into addictive use, that takes you into a cycle of survival. You're surviving, okay? Uh, because all you're doing is seeking a way to get high. Uh, and, and that only puts you in a state where you all you worry about is how am I going to get enough to, 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 to get my high, okay? And that cycle in turns take, turns uh, into a state of insanity, okay? Uh, because you're doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. You're just worrying about this thing. So you're worried about the future. You worry about the future high and you worry about the past high when you're down because you're, 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 you have the shame and guilt and dirtiness and everything that gets associated with what I call the emotional hangover, okay? But you're also looking forward to the next high. But when you have no choice, when you are in solitude, you become present. You become present. And when you are present, you detach from the future and from the past, and you exit that state of insanity, okay? And you exit that state of of survival, and you just said it. You don't have anything to worry about. You didn't have a car payment. You didn't have a mortgage payment. You didn't have drugs to worry about. Who are you going to score from? Who are you running away from? So you were forced to be brought to the present, okay? So that's beautifully put. Absolutely. tell Tell me when you make that connection, when you realize, because at some point you had to detach yourself um, Kyle, from, from the drug use. At some point, you, you, stop, you, stop, you stop romancing it. You stop thinking about it. How did that happen? When did that happen? When did that psychic change take place? So it, I'm going to say probably five to six months into that situation where I'm in the cell, right? I mean, you, you have to understand, I'm, I'm, I'm I don't know if this is important or not, but I think that it's, it's critical to understand that I wasn't just using a little bit. I, I was absolutely insane. I was an intravenous user, and I was doing about five to six shots a day at 50 cc's. So coming down for me didn't just happen overnight. And the clarity in thinking like myself again didn't start to happen until five or six months into this experience. That doesn't mean that I wasn't still seeking God and I wasn't still trying to figure things out, but I was able to release. And, and it may not have been time. It may have been, to your point, the, the psychic connection with the love and the people that believed in me in the past that allowed me to release this need for drugs, this, this new concept of what life was really about. But at some point, five or six months into this, I was done. I was done thinking about it. I was done agonizing. And I was just hoping that I would get my chance to contribute again. Was there a moment that you actually thought, I haven't thought about using? Uh, I'm sure. We're, 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 uh, we're talking about, my goodness, uh, 20 years ago, right? So it's, it's, I don't, I don't specifically remember saying, Hey, I'm not thinking about it again, but I do remember specifically thinking my thoughts feel like me again. My thoughts feel like they're grounded 
uh, at the very least in you know the virtues and um, the etiquette that my parents taught me, right? And I started to recognize that. I started to recognize that I wasn't as mad. I started to recognize that guards didn't offend me so much, and that you know I just started to recognize all of those things, which may be you know along the same lines as the same thing. But I don't specifically remember. Hey, I'm not thinking about drugs anymore. So, so let me let, let me let me ask you a question. You're in there for seven years, nine years, seven. Okay. I, and so, but you were sentenced to nine. Is is that uh, did you get out in good time, good behavior, or or okay? Yeah. So it, it's a longer story than that. But simply put, uh, I got out on parole. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you get out, and what happens? Uh, so I get out and I'm scared to death, right? And just to kind of go back to this again, I'm 35 years old. I have no college degree. Um, I do have business experience, right? My parents owned a business when I was growing up and I did work for them. So I, I, I don't want to say that I knew nothing about business, but I didn't have any connections. And I go from, and a lot of people that have done time will understand this. You get the job you can get. And a lot of people end up in call centers. And I was the guy that would call up and, and ask you to uh, renew a contract with Verizon for a new flip phone. I don't know if you remember that back in 2005, but there was lots of people doing it. Well, that was me. And I decided that this wasn't going to be my life, but I was going to train myself on how to get people to do more, how to sell, how to create a hot button. And I just took that and expanded into the rest of my career. Um, but that was short lived. And th this is, yes, go ahead. It, it, and, and, and I want to go even, I want to go even a little bit deeper beyond that. Good. Okay. okay. I want to talk to young Kyle. I want to talk to Kyle at the age of 12, 13 years old. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk to Kyle, the Kyle that went from using recreational drugs to becoming an addict and then eventually cooking meth. Tell me about him. Uh, it, you, you just actually said the word 13, didn't you? Um, yeah, that's funny. Uh, so yeah, at 13, uh, I smoked my first joint and I drank some beer and I grew up in a small town. I love this small town. Um, but in my town in the eighties, uh, drinking beer was not looked down on, right? Kids could do that. And it was, um, it was acceptable, right? But the 13, 14, 15 year old version of me was a very angry, um, confused kid that was just looking for something exciting, right? I mean, I can look back on it now and I can say what, what drove me to using was a combination of two things. I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I really liked doing stuff that was taboo. I really liked to push the envelope because I didn't believe the restrictions that everybody was putting on me. Um, so I liked to push the envelope and there was, there was some sense of adrenaline that I got from that. Right. But I really, the minute I smoked weed, I, I thought this, this is something that, uh, that should be legal. And it's something that really, really um, feels good. Now, meth I didn't use until I was in my twenties. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go back to the thirteen-year-old 
Kyle, and, and I use it, the, the, the age 13 because it's a very common age in where young boys and young girls have a flip. You know, there's, there's a lot of confusion, hormonal, teenage years, not getting along with parents, not fitting in school. Why was Kyle angry? Uh, so I, I, um, I have a really tough time saying this, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it. Um, my stepfather, my, my parents, biological parents, my, my mother and my biological father divorced when I was three. And I got a stepfather who essentially raised me at four and five. And he was a very stern man. Um, and it was clear to me at a young age, even though I didn't articulate it this way, that I wasn't necessarily wanted, but I was a package deal. And I think once I started to think for myself and create um, my own definitions of the world, it was clear to me that I wasn't wanted. And I, I was loved in a sense, but, um, but life would have been better if I wouldn't have been in the family. This is the way I felt. I'm not suggesting that's the way other people felt but this is the world that I created. And that made me mad. It also made me get attention in many, many different ways from as many people as I could. And so that's a difficult thing for me to talk about because that same stepfather and I reconciled that mess and created a beautiful relationship in the end. But, um, but it was a tough go in the beginning. And I just was, a, was a, an angry, ornery, attention-seeking young man. And that young man becomes 16, 17 years old. And where does the meth come in? Well, the first time I tried meth, I was 18 years old. I, I just graduated from high school and a buddy of mine could score and, and I was all in. So, and it wasn't pure, but that was my first introduction. And then, of course, I did what a lot of people did. We, we got diet pills and over-the-counter stuff. But hold on, Kyle. I, I, I want to make a connection because there's usually, you know, you're 13 years old and you're drinking beer. Mm -hmm. And people in the community to listen and say, well, you know, to a certain degree, it's a normal abnormal, right? I mean, it's normal abnormal. It's normal that you say, you know, kids hang out and they're going to experiment, okay? So it's not right but it's more common than, than, than uncommon, okay? Uh, but, but did that progress into weed or any other drugs? I mean, you didn't go straight from, 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 from just occasional, uh, you know, uh, uh, experimenting into hardcore meth, did you? No, uh, well, here, here's how it worked out for me. In high school, it was, alcohol and cannabis, right? That, that was it. And as soon as I get out uh, and I go to college, um, cocaine was introduced to me. I really enjoyed that, but found out that I didn't have any control. Uh, then LSD and I mean, just a, a cornucopia of the usual suspects. And I tried them all, but I was still on the outside of these drug circles. I was, you know, I knew somebody that knew somebody that could get it. So if I wanted to parachute in the middle of the drug world for a weekend, I could do that. Now at the age of 24, I was introduced to a meth cook's girlfriend who liked me 
And now I have an, a bottomless bag and pure methamphetamine. And I, it just was a perfect recipe for me to become an addict. And I'd never been in a world like that. I'd never been initiated. And as soon as she decided that my drug addiction wasn't fun anymore and cut me off, I decided probably because of my confidence that I was never going to run out. And I taught myself how to manufacture. And that's kind of how that whole thing started. Okay. So let's go back to, um, you get parole. Get parole. After seven years and, you know, uh, a lot of things happened between 2000, you know, 1997 and 2004. Okay. The world changed, you know, technology, computers were introduced, uh, you know, the iPod, the iPad, um, Apple was really making technology was making big, big waves, a lot of changes, a lot of new information. And you come out and you are completely illiterate to the new world. What happens? Well, the first thing that happened on day one <clears throat> is I had a panic attack just trying to buy soap and shampoo. And I, I say that because um, panic attacks, it's, it's a new concept for me, but I'm certainly institutionalized. I'm certainly scared to death. And this is all um, shown to me by the moment where they tell me to go buy shampoo and soap and I can't give my money to the girl behind the counter because I'm scared to death. And I just white knuckle through all of that. I get this position at the uh, call center. And a couple months after that, this is while I'm in a halfway house. But a couple months after that, I get a position in a marketing um, department of a yacht chartering company, but I'm still answering phones. And I start to play games with my mind. I start to figure out ways to get the, the credit card number when people are on the phone so that they would buy the boats. And I start to figure out ways to keep them talking to me longer. And this becomes the cornerstone of how I train people to sell. And I just, it's a really long story, Peter, but I just to condense it all, I just take these huge monumental leaps every time a window opens. And it, it was scary right? I, I go from that moment of walking out to literally two years later, I am the director of North American sales for a $15 million business unit. And I'm teaching people to do things I've never done before. But what I kept doing is working above my pay grade and taking on these uh, responsibilities every time somebody said, hey, who wants to do this? And it literally led to the end result. Um, but there's lots of micro decisions I made in between all of that. I think it's important that we talk about some of those micro decisions. Where were you getting the knowledge and the information to be able to learn? Or you know, self-education is very important today. And it's 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 it's, 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 it's uh, I just had a, a an episode with uh, Dean Graziosi, and Dean Graziosi talks a lot about self-education. In fact, uh, Dean and, and Tony Robbins just designing a self-education program. Uh, that, that, that fits right into our changing times. So with that in mind, tell me, where were you getting the tools to learn what you have learned? Because you have been detached from the world. I mean, you know, uh, uh, did you know about uh, YouTube when you went in there? No. Okay. 
so you need to know YouTube, you don't know the internet, you need to know social media, you need to know any of that stuff. Okay. So where were you learning or where were you gaining those skills? And that's important. It's important for the community. Okay. Because if you know, it's important for people to realize that a lot of us focus on resources instead of being resourceful. Okay. And you definitely didn't have any resources, but you were being very resourceful. So tell me where you were getting that information from. So it, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a combination of a lot of different things, but I mean, just to kind of rope it all in, um, I met my wife. I met my wife, uh, I got to think about this, five months after walking out of prison, and she knew things, and she's a saint. And you, I mean, everybody knows how opposites attract, so you can imagine what a saint she might have been, right? But she was a resource that taught me Excel and got me started on Excel and PowerPoint and all those other things. But I literally became a student of the game to everything and anything somebody was doing. I, I walked into every situation knowing that everybody around me knows more than I do, but I'm gonna watch them and I'm gonna see what they're doing. Then it started to become what they were doing wrong. Then it started to become what I can do better. And then it started to become, I don't care if I fumble anymore, Let's continue to push the envelope. But I didn't have YouTube. I, I mean, this is 05, 06, right? So during that time, did you ever think about using again? Never. 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 So you go from, from making meth, mm -hmm. going to prison, being incarcerated for seven years, not having any type of recovery program not having any kind of rehab program, but you integrated your self-imposed rehab, which, 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 which the bottom line is that besides faith and ourselves, those are the only two resources we can ever rely on, truthfully. Uh, outside of that, everything else is a hit and miss, right? Uh, so with that in mind, um, you never had a desire to use I never had a desire to use. I, I, I think this is really important. And it, it's um, for me, I mean, it, it was a, uh, you know, I, I, I want to make it clear. I wasn't just kind of an addict. I was a junkie, hence the name of my book. Right. But um, when I was in, I stopped smoking. Um, and, and quite frankly, I, I think it's important for everybody to also understand you don't have to quit drugs because you're in prison. There's still everything you want in prison. You just have to know the right people and you have to have money. But I chose to quit smoking cigarettes. I chose to quit drinking alcohol. I literally played a game with my mind in every single way because I had gotten that moment where I made bail and I failed within 48 hours of being out and I was never going to let that happen again. And I was scared to death of this powerlessness that I came to grips with in that cell by myself. And I didn't kid myself. If I was ever going to use again, I was coming back for the rest of my life. Here's something that didn't get mentioned, Peter. I didn't just face that 30 years once. I, I faced a life sentence after that. Because when I was going to get paroled after three years, I was going to do three years on that nine-year sentence. That's the way it worked in Missouri. When I was about to get paroled, just months away from my parole, I got federally indicted. And I was facing life 
So I went through that twice. And when you go through that, it is a very natural uh, inclination to figure out a way to never use again, right? I have a, a stick behind me that most people don't have. And I know that if I do, I won't see the light of day. And, and, and Kyle, you know, you say that, but I have attended, um, you know, I've been sober 20 years and I have attended uh, literally hundreds uh, and probably in the thousands of, of, of uh, 12 step meetings. And I can tell you, I can think of three or four different individuals there that had had two or three DWIs and they go right back out and drink again. Okay. Um, and they go and, and they have faced life sentences. I had had people that I know that had been in a uh, DUI accident and somebody um, got killed as a result of that and they survived the accident and there were the perpetrators of the accidents and they go back in use again, okay? And the reason that I am diving a little bit deeper on you is because um, I, I, I realize that a lot of that has to do with the individual and the willingness to have the willingness, okay? Um, and, and, and to be able to make a psychic connection that switches that because for all practical purposes, um, you know, you could have OD. I tried. Okay. You could have OD and you could have died, but you weren't afraid. And you just said it. I mean, you, you, you try, but you weren't afraid. You wanted to die. You wanted to die, you know, because we do get to a point in addiction where we can't live with that, but we can't live without it. But at the, you made that switch. You made that switch in, in prison where you found your life to be more valuable than what it was when you were outside of prison and you had all the freedom. And that is fascinating. To me, that's a fascinating story. Mm. Take Silicon Valley. Yeah, these are, these are, uh, you're really good at what you do, Peter. <laughs> these are great insights. Take us to Silicon Valley. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't hear that. Yeah. Uh, to Silicon Valley. So, Let's let's call it the Bay Area, right? Because Silicon Valley gives the impression that this is some sexy Microsoft or something like that. But it it um, it is the land of startup. And what I was quickly educated on was um, was how to talk and act inside uh, the VC world, right? Which was so interesting to me. Um, there again, being a student of the game of everything I could get my hands on. Um, I, I loved raising funds. I loved being the center of attention. Um, I loved uh, getting the pat on the back and I loved living in chaos. So I, I, I just want to step back into the addiction part of things. I, this is what I know about myself. I have never, except for when I was writing the book, thought about methamphetamine and what it would be like to use it again, because it was a tough, a tough position for me to write the book but I realized that my addictive personality has filtered into my life in so many other ways. One of them was work. Uh, another was alcohol. Um, you know, there was other things that uh, hindered my life that I had to come to grips with. But going into the Bay Area, uh, it was the most exciting thing in the world to me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a young man, right, in my mind from Higginsville, Missouri, right, small town USA. And now I'm driving in by myself into San Francisco and ready to make a name for myself. Um, 
So it, it was all exciting. What well, I found out really. And, and you go, and you go to uh, the Bay Area where sex, drugs, power, rock and roll, and alcohol, and women, they're all missed in the same pot and same sex, everything. How did you not get tempted to be vacuum into that again? A lot of it had to do with my wife, and a lot of it had to do with the fear of what would happen if I used again. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, I can't I can't say enough about my wife being my guardian angel, um, and the fact that I never wanted to let her down. So we just didn't hang out in quote unquote wrong crowds. And, and I'm saying wrong crowds for me. We certainly loved live music. We certainly were around people that partied, but we did not hang out in the wrong areas. And that's the cornerstone of it all. Um, I, I, just, I just don't feel the temptation to use. I mean, it, it, look, if, if somebody was to ever possess in front of me, I couldn't imagine the nervousness and you know, the weak knees and everything else just to be around that sort of thing. So it's only a natural state for me to run from that now. Does that make any sense? Oh, it makes a lot of sense. It, it makes a lot of sense. Although I'm a believer that when you are fully integrated into recovery, physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally, um, you are able to integrate yourself into the totality of the whole. Uh, in other words, you know, you, you become one, okay? The guy that has cancer or, or the gal that has cancer and, and the cancer is in redemption or, or remission, pardon me, in remission and, or the cancer goes away, well, they don't call themselves, you know, my name, I'm, I'm an ex-cancer victim. Uh, you get what I'm saying? And, and in addiction, many of us label ourselves addicts, alcoholics, you know, recovery, whatever, right? Uh, and, and I talk about recovery, and I, 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 I got sober in a 12-step program of recovery, but I also believe that I am so far along in my recovery, um, and, and, and that, that, that my, my commitment to my recovery as a whole um, is, is so deep and rooted that there's nothing that can shatter that, okay? But it also, because I am so... Uh, isolated and protected from 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 the addiction, I can function very well in the totality of the world. Uh, I, I I I you know I, I'm not an island and I don't want to be an island. I want to be part of the whole. Uh, so so you know I I travel a lot you know for business and 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 I go to bars and I go to places where my friends drink and uh, you know. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm not in a circle where there's drug use or stuff like that. But if it, if it was there, I mean, I just walk away and that's the end of it. You, you, so, so, so I feel that, and I'm beginning to see, as I started this journey with a podcast, and I have an interview 40 plus people for the podcast, um, I'm beginning to see that there's a lot more um, self-imposed recovery, for lack of a better word, Okay. Um, uh, more people that have actually found their way to recovery without any institutionalized uh, program, okay? They recover after having a dramatic experience. That was enough for them to say, hey, I don't want this, okay? And it sounds like you've done that. And, and, and I ask these questions because, you know, um, 
you and I kind of both uh, grew up in that area of, of Scarface and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, what's the other movie? Wall Street, okay? Uh, and then you go to, you go to, to the Bay Area where, where everything is, is happening. There's the excitement. Here's a guy that's been away for seven years, and you're in the melting pot of technology. You're right into the center of it. Okay, and you're beginning to see things that 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 you know get to the real world outside of the Bay Area a little bit longer than, than you're right in the you're right in the melting pot. So, uh, Kyle, how did you land the job uh, with the, the company? Job. Eventually, got a billion dollar uh, corporation. Yeah, so that's a that's a, a million dollar question itself as well. But what I had to do clearly, I had a record. Uh, clearly I had a past and this is an important distinction to make. I never lost continuity between my jobs. Nobody that I worked for, I, I don't want to say nobody. In the very beginning when I was on parole and probation, um, my employers had to know because I had parole officers that would come visit me. But after that first job, uh, none of my employers knew, none of the people that worked around me, none of my friends my wife and I, we started having babies in 2010. None of the friends that we knew very closely knew anything about this. So I'm living a double life all the, the time that I'm in San Francisco, which took a toll on me in itself. But the way I got jobs was literally working 16 hours a day and outperforming everybody I, could, I was around. I mean, this is, this is a component of my personality anyway. Nobody's ever going to outpractice me when I'm in high school sports. Nobody's ever going to show up earlier, or try harder, or put in more. And I translated that into my career. And as a sales guy, it's really simple. And, and, and I get that. But in an age of technology where people can Google Kyle Dean Houston, okay, and being that competitive individual that you are, uh, you know, I'm sure at some point you, you rob off a couple of people. Was there ever a moment where somebody Googled you and find you out? There wasn't a single moment, and I was always scared of it. Always. So at what point did you decide to become so public about it? And, 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 and you know, I would think that, that at, at the point where a privately owned company gets acquired by a billion dollar, a $2 billion publicly traded company, the scrutiny is going to start. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's amazing. So the first question, uh, when did I decide to go public? Yes. Um, yeah. Actually, let me, let me answer that last question first. Um, you're right. Inside a $2 billion publicly traded company, if you don't come in as one of the main people they're buying the company for, they're going to screen you to death and they're not going to hire you. It's just that simple. So I tell everybody jokingly, but it's true. I had to grow a business from 1 million to 20 million and sell it to a $2 billion publicly traded company to create a job inside there for me to have the career I had, right? I couldn't walk on the door, knock on the door and say, hey, here's my resume, will you hire me? Because the answer is gonna be no. And I did that in every single stepping stone that I took on the way to that journey. So. Um, so yeah, it was difficult, but back to when I decided, uh, it was a couple of years ago and I had a failed partnership, uh, business partnership 
and I was literally waking up with knots in my stomach. I was making every single decision based on fear and insecurity and all the what ifs. And I got to a point to where I knew that it all stemmed from living this double life. Excuse me. <clears throat> so I made the decision. It was uh, actually July of 2017 that I was done letting this control my life. The shame and the guilt, it may have been there my entire life, I don't know, but it felt like it had always been there and I was done with it. So I decided that I wasn't just going to tell a few friends, I was going to do something that I could never turn back from and potentially jeopardize this career that I built, but I'm writing my story. And so it turned into Patchwork Junkie. And, and why did you decide to write your story? Well, I, I decided to write it, first of all, for what I just described. It was literally because uh, this was my opportunity to release all of this weight on my shoulders, right? Um, which I will tell you, I talk about it freely now, although you've, you've really you know, pushed the envelope on a lot of that in this talk, and I love it. But I, um, in the beginning, it was one of, one of the scariest things I've ever done. I thought everybody was going to abandon me. Nobody was going to like me. I wouldn't be employable again. So it was written for that reason. But as I started to write it, it became for many other reasons. It became this opportunity, just like you, to get rid of stigma, for people to have understanding of what kind of people become addicted. And then it became this opportunity to show loved ones of addicts what we're thinking about right? Why we do these things. And it's really not about them. And the whole book became about humility, understanding, empathy, um, and this beautiful thing that started out as just my opportunity to let it go. From the beginning of writing the book, how long has it taken you to write the book, uh, Kyle? So it depends on how you ask the question, but I, I started making notes July of 2017, and then took a break, and then tried to find somebody that could write it for me. That didn't work out. But the first draft, really, once I sat down, took about three or four months, and I, I just, it just flowed, and I wrote it with pen and paper. How does that, how has that shifted from the beginning of you writing the book? You know, writing and journaling is a very powerful tool. It's a very healing tool. Uh, you know, I journal every day. I, I, I read a book myself, which releases this year. Uh, and, and, and every day I write and I usually begin with whatever I have on my mind. And that translates into solving whatever is, is, is swirling around in, in my head and finding the solution, you know, and I have discovered that everything I worry about, I either create or I have the solution for. Okay. If I take the time to pause and reflect and then put the top to, to pen and paper, then I'm able to liberate that and, and, my, and, and I can go through a stress-free day. I also discovered in the process of writing my book was that when I first started writing my book, it took my book almost four years to write, okay? And I would write and stay off of it, write and stay off of it. And I did hire a ghostwriter. And then the ghostwriter will take, will listen to me, listen to my story, inscribe everything, and then come back and bring it to me, put it together, and then I would go back. But what I discovered in the process was that how I felt from one point 
from starting point to two years later, a year later was completely different than how I felt at the beginning. Did you have that same experience? Oh my God, in spades, absolutely. I mean, it's the, the, the man who sat down in, in July of 2017 and the man you're talking to right now is a completely different species. Tell me the difference between the two men. The two men. Uh, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about a person that was in, before the writing, uh, a man who was full of self-doubt, full of fear that nobody was ever going to like him, having zero self-worth, right? There's a big difference between self-confidence and self-worth. Had tons of self-confidence, no self-worth. I didn't feel like I would be likable if anybody knew my story. I felt like my house of cards would crumble. And every single decision I was making, and from finances to you name it, was done out of fear that my story was going to catch up to me, that people were going to find out. Now, I stand before you and I will tell you any question you wanna ask me, and I am a much more complete person. I've come to grips with my past and the relationship that I had with my stepfather and why it's okay that I got addicted, right? I mean, I felt so flawed and so um, just evil. That I had got addicted and did that to those pe to, to the people that loved me and believed in me. And now I've forgiven myself. And now I've started the journey of being complete. Um, and it is, I, I, I can't describe it. I know you understand it, but it is day and night different. The way I look at the world, the way I understand why people do the things that they do that may not necessarily agree with me. I have much more empathy and tolerance and patience for all of that simply because I wrote my story. I love my mother in a different way. I, I, oh my goodness, the relationship that I have with my children just because of this book. Um, I mean, it, 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 it has gotten itself into every single facet of my life and healed so much. There's still so much work to do, but it has become I, quite frankly, the biggest stepping stone towards my higher self that I've ever taken, with one exception, that, that time in that cell that I spent by myself, that was a huge leap too. Who is Kyle Dean Houston today? Well, Kyle Dean Houston today, uh, I'm proud to say is an author. Uh, I'm also a coach uh, and also a speaker. but. More than anything, I am a, a loving husband. I am a doting father. One, one, one thing that we did not get into, I also have two sons that, um, that are much older and they went through the cycles that, uh, you know, when I was in prison. So I am a person that is doing everything I can to make amends with all of that with them. And, um, and that's what's important to me in my life. I, I want to take all of my experience and give people hope and the reason to believe that they can rise above anything that they find themselves in. Where can people find you today, Kyle? Well, they can find me on Facebook. They can find me on Instagram. Um, that my website is kyledeanhouston.com. Um, both Facebook and Instagram are at kyledeanhouston. Uh, and of course, the book can be pre-ordered now as of a week ago uh, at amazon.com and it's patch junk uh, patchwork junkie
this show is called coming clean for a reason and you have come very clean you have shared a lot about your story and i am humble and honored to have an opportunity to interview you is there anything that you have not come clean about that you would like to share with our community oh peter wow uh no listen i i want to thank you for the questions that you've given me because <clears throat> You've allowed me to go a lot deeper than I intended to in public, and it means a lot to me. I feel mm -hmm. even lighter than I did walking into this interview. Peter, I, again, I've said it twice. You're good at what you do, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. You heard him here. Kyle, uh, Kyle Dean Houston, author, speaker, a husband and a father, and an incredible human being. Thank you for being with us today. Stay tuned. Listen to this episode share with a friend, subscribe, leave us a review. You can find us on Instagram, of course, at Come and Clean Podcast, on Facebook at Come and Clean Podcast, and we are available at every platform. Listen to us and stay tuned for this upcoming incredible episode. Thank you so much.